0: an island in the Pacific and everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to tend me palms to fan me egg, and an occasional
1: man. Hi there. Welcome to episode 38 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have two special guests with me. Some film club regulars, First, we have Pearl Quinn, who's a trained librarian, but she now works in RTE, that's Radio Telefish Aaron, the national broadcaster here in Ireland. And also with me today is Sandra Godkin. She's a librarian with the Central Branch on Henry Street and in charge of the business section. Uh, both ladies are joining me today to talk about Betty Davis and Storm Center from 1956. So let's see, Um, ladies, why should people seek out this film?
2: Well, for me, um, I was surprised at how contemporary it is, really, in terms of the concerns and the issues that it discusses. Um, it's about censorship and uh, what somebody does when they're challenged. In this case, a librarian is, is asked to remove an unsuitable book, inverted commas, from her library, uh, which she has run for 25 years. So, And the book is called The Communist Dream, and it's a fictional book as far as we can tell. We did go to the trouble of <laughs> searching catalogues, so we couldn't find any entry for The Communist Dream. We We were wondering, was it a novel or non-fiction? It doesn't really matter, but anyway. But what I felt was... interesting about it was it started out being about the issue of censorship, it turns into something else, it turns into uh, to, her, to concerns about her as a person as an individual and her background and to me that felt very contemporary because there has been so much now in the media about people being hauled in front of committees or their past coming back to haunt them in terms of going to, for positions or things, decisions being made about them in their career. So, And I think it's more the case now because the, nobody has any, or there is less privacy now, it's just so easy to find out things about people now so how a controversy develops how it starts out being about one thing ends up being about another and an individual against a larger institution whether it's your employer or it's somebody else so all of those things make it very contemporary
0: I think.
1: That's great Pearl there are so many um, contemporary parallels. Sandra what draws you to the picture?
0: Um, I suppose I'll come at it from a different angle Um I was just thought it was a very brave and frank film for the time and um, I've read a little bit about that era and I didn't realise somebody had actually made a, fa- a film addressing the kind of anti-communist panic and actually naming it as a book about a thing about communism it wasn't an allegory it wasn't coded it was they were they were um, having a problem with her because she had a book about communism in the library and they were investigating her past in a way that did happen to people at the time and um, so I never knew this film existed so I thought that was interesting And when we think back on that era, I think we think about um, Hollywood figures, stars and directors, screenwriters who were blacklisted, but an awful lot of the victims of that era would have just been ordinary public servants like the librarian in this film. So I thought that was really interesting. Mm.
2: It works as a period piece and as a contemporary piece as Mm. well, I think, you know, and we both enjoyed Betty Davis's performance in it. Uh, Sandra and you are much more (laughs) knowledgeable about this era than I would be. But I think people who dislike Betty Davis accuse her often of being a bit screechy or over the top or theatrical. People who don't like her, I don't think that about her. But in this, it's a really understated performance. Um, You know, if she is playing a librarian, very buttoned down character, although it turns out she has quite an interesting past. And her... That was interesting to me as well. There, It isn't about gender politics specifically but that does come out in terms of this happens in representations of very bright women academic women, librarians in film that their kind of single status has to be explained or you know, it, they're not allowed, it's you can't almost be a sexual person and also be intelligent and also be a librarian or be an academic or whatever, you know. So that's there, I thought, but it's not explicit. But um, yeah, and even her appearance, it was, you know, very, very buttoned down for Betty mm. Davis. And I was I was impressed with it as a performance. You know, it was quite a for her particularly, but you know, you know more about Betty yeah, Davis. No, I think so it's might, very restrained. Yes, um, restrained is the word but yeah.
0: when she does explode, it's fabulous. There is mm. a scene where suddenly the anger comes out and you do get a sense of how a person is destroyed by a scandal like this because, mm-hmm. you know, she gets very down, obviously, when the town turns against her and quite bitter about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it doesn't underestimate how difficult it is to be isolated like that. Mm hmm.
1: What I like about the film is, in one sense, I can cast her in sort of the heroic uh, tradition of that time, just like with Gary Cooper in High Noon, Mm. where he asks the town people, will you stand with me? You know, and there's that big meeting and we know the clock's ticking and, um, you know, his adversaries are coming to do away with him. And Betty pretty much goes through the same thing. And all of the townspeople lack the courage of their convictions because they know at an individual level, they will be destroyed and they Mm -hmm. don't want to risk it. So she stands on her own. But then on another level, aside from all of the censorship and um, the scandal, What I like about this is I think there's a really um, interesting take on um, sexism and ageism. Mm -hmm. And one thing that really stood out for me was not long ago, I was talking with a woman who is a professional coach for women in business. And she said she was inundated with um, pleas for help from women in their 50s who are being pushed out of their professions. Mm -hmm. And the benevolent face was, here's a really nice retirement package for you. Now, please go. But the other side of that is bullying. It's... It's ghosting or marginalizing or leaving them out of projects and whatnot. So they go or or you try and make them redundant. And then, you know, as she said, this woman, they just bring in someone half her age and Mm -hmm. she'll wear stilettos and a tight skirt. And that'll be that. And that's what goes on here. Exactly. The -hmm. city council, when they take her off, they put in Kim Hunter, Mm -hmm. who's young and wears the textbook librarian, the sexy librarian (laughs) pose. Right? She has the two buttons Mm -hmm. undone. She has the pencil skirt and heels. Mm -hmm. And so she's the young, fresh one, because we don't want to look at the haggard old woman anymore. We Mm -hmm. want we want someone to jazz up the place and be decorative. And there's that that real sense of of being passed over that, you know, you have lost your power to persuade a table of men if they don't find you fuckable anymore.
2: Um, Mm, That's interesting. I didn't quite consider that although Kim Hunter's character does acknowledge that later on in the movie well you know what do we get out of this I got a better job so and there is an affection between Kim Hunter's character um, and Betty Davis's character but it's funny you mention about her being done down by this group of men for me that was one of the strongest uh, uh, scenes in the film where she has to justify her decision initially she agrees to remove the book from the shelf and it's all very political they take her out for lunch and they say we will give you your children's wing which she has been advocating for for an awfully long time if you remove this Book. Just do this one little thing for us. It's just one little thing. And then she changes her mind. She comes in and she's called up in front of them and says, it isn't just this one book. This is a principle here. You're asking me to do something that I cannot in all conscience do because it goes against everything I believe in as a librarian or everything that a public library should be. That it's a free exchange of ideas that anybody can look at anything they want and come to their own conclusions about it. She completely wins the argument in my view. But um, that's why I was mentioning about the contemporary resonance. The very uh, amoral character in my you played Paul played by Brian Keith and who's really really well played I think in this he's got he's on his local city council and he clearly has his eye on the main chance he wants to make it to I don't know Washington or something some higher political post anyway and he sees this as an opportunity to do that and he brings up her past so he hasn't won the argument but he's dragged in something else which is what uh, that's her membership of kind of vaguely sympathetic communist organizations or organizations simply um, peace organizations as we would know them now you know and th- this is something that happens in contemporary politics, your membership your student membership of whatever is called out against you 20 years later or whatever Um, So, and I mentioned as well, I think there is a case in Ireland which might be of interest to listeners, Um, I don't know if anybody's heard of the curious case of the Mayo librarian, but there was a case in this country in County Mayo in 1930 so about 26 years before this film is set, where um, a Mayo County Council library committee refused to endorse the appointment of a lady called Letitia Dunbar-Harris wonderful name. She was a Protestant woman who was Trinity educated. She was appointed by, um, uh, centrally appointed to the position of Mayo County Librarian, but the local uh, Mayo Library Committee um, did not approve her appointment because the official reason given was that her Irish was inadequate or wasn't up to scratch. But it was thought that more sectarian issues were at play, you know, the fact that, you know, that she wasn't from the county, that she was Protestant, (laughs) that she was Trinity educated. Now it's controversial historians disagree about the name nature of um, what happened. But it, it resulted in a library boycott at one point. She didn't get the job. She was transferred into the civil service. And um, a lot of politicians made hay with it, basically. Eamon de Valera was among them. So, um, so it's an example, a real world example, admittedly earlier, slightly different, not about a particular book. She didn't even get to be appointed to the position. But um, that's why that scene was so powerful to me and it crystallised a lot of issues around your principles as an individual and when they rub up against a larger institution who is employing you who is paying your wages and there are people that you work for if you're a public librarian who would endorse i don't want to see that book on the shelf and how do you deal with that and i mean betty davis's riposte is you can't run a library to please everyone so you must run it under certain kind of gold principles gold standard principles which she does so and she pays for that you know she a a personal cost for that so you know this it's, it's very live. It's very live stuff, even though it is of its time as well, you know. What about the lunch scene for
1: you, Sandra? What really stands out or what, what do you find striking about that?
0: Um, can
1: a lady just eat her gumbo in oh, peace? Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and it's quite patronising. I mean, this is a big decision mm-hmm. and they're kind of, they're doing it over lunch. I mean, you know, this is an important thing for her, for the library. They bring her in there, they roll their eyes when she starts reminiscing, you know, as people do, as older people do. It's, yeah, I, I really didn't like their attitude towards her. Um, but the scene develops really well. I think that's the one where she starts talking about um, mm-hmm. other books. And she even brings up the fact that in the 30s they would have had a copy of Mein Kampf. Can- from the library and she felt she hated having the book there but she felt you, you 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 fight an argument by sort of exposing it rather than censorship you know this is her whole point you put everything in the library and then you trust the people to work it out for themselves you, you know so yeah it was a really good scene that one mm-hmm. And I have to ask, do you have a little drawer
1: by your checkout where you keep all the confiscated goods that people get when they take out, which today would be what, like bong pipes or something? It yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might have been as innocent
2: as what they have there. Yeah, yeah. I well, love there is that a drawer, yes. yeah, uh, it's, well, but it's, it's right at the very start as well. So it just tells you about her character. She's clearly excellent at her job. You know, and she tells, Oh yes, this is where you find the book that you can't find. Seventy five point four. In the way only a librarian who've been yeah, at it yeah. an awfully long time could say, I know exactly where on the shelf that book is. But uh, yes, yeah, I suppose that is. There are these nice little moments in it that we both mm. enjoyed. Um I mean it's a lovely it's a lovely set. It's a beautifully yes, um, yeah. dressed set, a lovely library, anyone that a library anybody would be happy to go into. Um and even in terms of what she's wearing, we were she but they do make her look rather matronly. I, I always thought she was dressed like a head nurse in a hospital. Mm. I mean, even mm-hmm. the little kind of watch she wears yes, yeah. that That's kind of hanging off her, you know, like the kind of watch that nurses used to wear. But there's little flares as well, you know, kind of beautiful hats with kind of beading on it, which I saw a couple of women in the film wearing as well. So,
0: um, yeah. I liked the, the library for all the little touches in it. Like behind her, there's a poster of Windsor Castle. There's a copy of the Statue of the Winged Victory of Samothrace. And you're going... Very random. But again, it reminds you of a real library. These things acquired over the years on people's travels. The sense of the library is a very outward looking place, Um, dealing with the entire world, not the small town. And I suppose there's a kind of repository of of Western culture, you know, Mm -hmm. that comes up later when we have the, the shot panning along the bookshelves. Uh, when the library's in peril.
2: The library is
1: pretty posh. I mean, when, when mm. Freddie's home in his house, it's not very, it's kind of shabby. It's kind of dull and dingy. Mm. Like they have a piano, but it's a small one. Their furniture isn't very good. But if you look in the library, they have that beautiful reading lamp oh, and yeah, a big yeah. cozy chair where Freddie's curled up with his Nathaniel Hawthorne and mm. she has to tug his ear to get him to stop. <laughs> it's like a place you want to be in yes. because yeah. it is so beautiful. Yeah. And it's it sort of you know reminds you that this
2: is a repository of, of civilization. Yeah as you say, or
1: or bigger learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think on the second viewing as well there were little resonances that you know you pick up on which is always a sign of a good film if there's stuff you notice second time around that you didn't notice before and even the fact that it's Nathaniel Hawthorne Wonder Book, and I think that's a retelling of Greek myths is it for um, boys and girls I think that's what it is and uh, that ties in with the, the Greek statue and mm, you know when he's mythology about the chimera and yeah, yeah yeah exactly actually it's interesting you should bring up um, the little boy who I think is the weak link in the picture I think Betty Davis is on record as not particular, not being she terribly fond under the bus. (laughs) Shall I uh, I read a (laughs) posture? Shall I read you what
1: he said about the boy? This is from (laughs) um this is from Mother Goddamn um with uh Whitney Stein. Um so he kind of did a history of her films and then she gave um, commentary that they put in red. She wrote I was not overjoyed with the finished film Storm Center. I had far higher hopes for it. The basic lack was the casting of the boy. He was not a warm, loving type of child. Because of this, his relationship with the librarian was totally unemotional, and therefore robbed the film of its most important factor. Their relationship, apart from the political aspect, was the very nucleus of the script. Threw the boy under the bus, Mm. but you know, which isn't as bad as his mother, who would pinch him until he cried basically to prepare him for a scene because he was having trouble emoting and Betty was disgusted at this and so was the director Daniel Taradash.
0: because his crying scenes Um. weren't good it was quite ugly (laughs) Uh, we were talking about
2: that pretty crying and ugly crying you have to be able to pretty cry (laughs) if you're going to be an actor or actress I think Um, but yeah, it's funny that he was the weekly mm, but that mm, makes mm. me feel bad now that he was treated (laughs) so badly I think um, it's a bit much to ask a child to be a good actor do you know what Mm. I mean if they're too good then there's just there's something off about Mm. it but Um, I think we weren't convinced by that particular cell plot that a child would be so deeply affected by a librarian being removed from you know from her position mm-hmm. um, I so we found it was a little bit weak um although it was interesting that 1950s different 1950s attitudes towards mm-hmm. children yeah. she's very tactile and very physical with them and there is a scene where she well, I don't want to give it away but there's you know um let's say she gets quite physical <laughs> with them mm-hmm. and you're kind of thinking it isn't noticed in by the people in the movie at all whereas that would be enough to get you imprisoned now really so it's that 1950s it's good at creating that 1950 or not creating but that representation Yeah, Yeah, reflecting yeah the 1950s small town America as we would perceive it not Mm. having experienced it but um, it's it's all kids outside playing outside groups of them hanging around you know everybody knows everybody else but yet there's I thought there was this and maybe it's just projecting back but there was this sense that people were just dying to burst out of these roles they were in and that's particularly true maybe of the mother of the little boy in this who is placed tries to play Chopin on her piano and has a rather rough and uncultured husband but who we felt slightly sorry for because he, he yeah, clearly couldn't relate yeah. to his son and um, that's another kind of you know, that a more realistic subplot maybe as oh, well, gosh. that father-son I, you, you're not agreeing. <laughs> no, I, I didn't
1: find him at all the least bit sympathetic and another mm-hmm. sort of theme I would find would be the toxic masculinity there mm-hmm. that he won't let his son read at the table that's one thing, you know, because then you say well it's just polite manners, we're here to, to yes, talk at the yeah, end of the day. We thought that too. Yeah. But spends too much time in the library. and yeah. He should be out spend, like yes. playing sports. So the boy, his anger stems from shame that his father is shaming him saying that, you know, look what happens. These people are evil and they're insidious mm-hmm. and they give you nightmares mm-hmm. and they sort of wreck our democracy. And so this boy is being held suspect because he likes to read instead of doing what normal boys do. And so if the reading wouldn't have made him more effeminate, then it was like sim- being around this pinko sympathizer mm-hmm. sort of person that um, you know conformity as Betty says this, yes this that was talent, a great line yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. do you want to talk about oh, that well.
0: <laughs> I suppose when we were picking scenes that was when I was thinking I do think they've managed to make the, the fold a bit more rounded he's not a complete villain I mean he does have a point don't read at the table mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know and he's trying to understand his son and I liked the way Betty's character wasn't condescending to him she was trying to help Um, and she does come up with this line about how um, there's too much emphasis put on conformity in this country and again I just thought that was a very unusual and brave line for the 1950s I wasn't expecting Mm -hmm. that Mm Um, I suppose it depends. Yeah, I can
2: can't completely see where you're coming from. He's very unsympathetic in lots of ways, but I just feel so terribly sorry for him as an individual. This is the father of the boy. Like, what are you missing out on, you know? Yeah. And I, I just felt that he can't, you know, that there is this world here and it's for you as well. And mm. he just isn't interested in it. Or he's, like you say, it is It is toxic masculinity, but I still wouldn't completely dismiss him. You know, I think he is trying, but he just can't, or you know, connect. So you're very kind, son. Pearl. I <laughs> <laughs> Not usually. <laughs> I would normally be more judgmental but I don't know um, I suppose he's kind of um, if the mother and the son have this good relationship we did wonder actually was he the child's real father oh,
0: Actually, yeah, you it, it did occur to, that, yeah. to me
2: that because I don't know there was some reference about her going to see her mother and I don't know did he, that he'd always tried to connect with him it was almost a, the
0: way a stepfather would speak to I, I a child I don't think he was but he could have been he yeah, seems, uh, seems so alienated from the family group in a way yeah, that he could just mm-hmm. have easily been a stepfather
2: and it's about rather sterile environment they do seem to be living in yeah. you know there's the TV in the corner and, you know, there's nothing in the room very much. There's no books in the room apart from the book the little boy brings back from the library, you know. Which his father rips, basically. True,
0: although he does try to make amends. Um, What struck me about that scene, I suppose, was two things. Um, One was the way, oh, she says people live exciting lives in other places apart from the sports field, the laboratory or even the library. Mm -hmm. And there was something very self-deprecating about the way she said that. And I thought, yeah, librarians were always slightly embarrassed by our job we like it but there's an element of oh know it's mm. a library <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's so much baggage that comes with people's ideas
2: mm. about libraries and librarians that it's useful shorthand we were chatting about this a librarian is useful shorthand for female sexual repression for officious authority yeah, you know yeah. for rules and regulations and people going shh and all that kind of stuff so it's not so much I think there's more um, examples of libraries being heroes in, in movies rather than librarians you know but um I suppose as well, to expand it out a bit into the gender politics, you know, is I, I, was, I feel that male librarians are more sympathetically portrayed in movies than female librarians. So hmm. I was thinking of um, Tim Robbins in Shawshank Redemption or one example that I rather like is Peter Sellers in a movie from 1962 called Only uh, well, Only Two Can Play, I think it's called. It's a black and white movie but he plays a, a frustrated librarian but he's more an object of sympathy and he really shouldn't be because he contemplates having an affair. He's married with a, a young child, I think, or two young children. But it's quite an amusing film. It's an unusual role for Peter Sellers I don't, he didn't write or direct it I think it's based on a story or a novel by Kingsley Amos but um, I feel that uh, male librarians are lovable nerds female librarians are sexually repressed harridans yeah. <laughs> for well, the most part well, there's some exceptions very lovable though mm. I mean
1: until the you know the,
2: all the children love her oh yes and the town turns yeah. them against her um, well, well this is different because she's the heroine of the film plus it's Betty mm. Davis so you know.
1: and even Kim Hunter I mean she's mm. not a viper she's no, not looking no. to get mm-hmm. rid of Betty so she can have her job I mean mm-hmm. she's sympathetic sizes with her with her plate and you know she even sort of backs off of gross you know Brian Keith or whatever his name is mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. at some point um, because of that but um, so back to um, I guess um, not the library but the role that it serves in the community so if we get a little backstory that she was the one who founded it 25 mm. years ago. Um,
2: Yes. Again, it, uh, she has an interesting enough backstory. I don't know—are we allowed to say it? Or is it too much of a spoiler? But um, she's married. She has been. She was married very briefly to um, a man who was killed in World War One. So I think that's part of um, somebody sticks up for her, basically, at a public gathering or at a, a semi-public gathering, um, and um, you know. It's again it's how she's being talked about, and she isn't, you know, she ha- and how terrifying that is actually when you lose control of what people think of you, you know, especially when you lose your job and you do a public facing role. So, people are free to make up all sorts of stories about her, you know. So, it's like children starting to make up all sorts of things about her or assumptions being made and things like that. So, um, again, I think that's what makes it so powerful um, that she is. I mean, she makes a really wonderful principle stand, but um, pays for it, and you know, she isn't sort of standing up, you know, um, banging tables and things like that, which is something she regrets, you know, later on. Maybe I should have done that. But um, so, yeah, it's it's well sketched out. I mean, we, we were impressed in terms of it, it was clearly a lot of thought behind it. You know, it's not a careless film in that way. Um, it's just I think it does weaken as it goes on. And I don't think we were well, I wasn't particularly um, convinced by the subplot with the little boy. So it felt it felt a bit forced, I think, for me.
0: Yeah, you you know, and it's not subtle I suppose, Mm. but I I liked it though, I just, you know, it was principled and Mm. just thinking about the scene with um, the father and the librarian, he's there to pay for a book that got ripped when he was having an argument with the child, and it it kind of runs through the film, this notion that the books are fragile, the library is fragile, um, freedom and children's minds are these are fragile. And there's the things that could be damaged by, I suppose, conformity, heavy handed parenting, the powers that be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: So, ooh, Freddie is the book. He's being torn asunder. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah.
0: And then you've got the great opening credits, the Saul Bass opening mm-hmm. credits again. The sense of like a horror film, really, at the start. You know, the the foreboding music, the eyes staring at the books. You
2: know, yeah. The stakes are very high. I mean, yeah. it is. It's in. It's an issues film. It's, yeah. it's taking a stance, and it's always very difficult to make a film like that. I think without being didactic, and um, it. You know, it's it's a it's a worthy failure, I think, in a way, or a partial success. Well, it's you know, well, no, <laughs> failure is a total word, but no. Oh, it is. it's it's worthy but not it's not it's definitely worth seeing I'm, I respect an awful lot of things about it but um it's I can understand Betty Davis's disappointment um in it um but uh, it's definitely still worth looking at now for sure you know and it has resonance in the in the here and now for sure definitely this um, project bounced around the
1: studios for a couple of years and what finally got it made was two things competition from television Mm -hmm. in that they were sort of looking for more you know controversial subjects that television wouldn't touch Mm -hmm. to sort of draw people out to the, the cinemas and the um the script was written by Daniel Teredash, who's the director, and this guy, Elik Mall, And um, they wanted it to be the statement about communism mm. and, um, you know, American society as sort of, we're stronger than you, Russia, because this book won't destroy us, mm. just like they say in the film, pretty much. Um, and then second, um, Harry Cohen at Columbia finally picked it up because there was very little risk for him to do so. So Daniel Teredash had formed F- Phoenix Productions. Um, so he would produce it. And the only thing that he he said was, I won't take any money, no salary, no guarantees, and we'll split whatever the box office is 50-50 between Columbia and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So it was a really sweet deal for Harry Cohen. He didn't have very much to lose. So it wasn't so, so much like high idealism. It was more like the bottom line was, dollar for mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. So that's basically why it did go into production. And the reviews were generally all great for Betty, a uh, noble effort, you know, like the the uh, sort of theme, but um, it was didn't do well at all at the box mm. office. Mm. So it's kind of a disappointment. Yeah. Um, and this was Betty's first time at Columbia Pictures. Mm. And she was also there at the same time as Joan Crawford.
2: <laughs> 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 it is interesting to think of it. It's six years after All About Eve, is that correct? So it's mm-hmm. quite a button-down performance or whatever. So, um, yeah, you can sense, I think pressures from TV, you know, although actually, weirdly enough, it's not mentioned, which seems surprising to me, you know, that there's a TV in the corner that isn't turned on, but um, I mean, I suppose, as we all know, television is the great enemy of uh, movies, particularly Mm -hmm. at that period, so there must have been, and we were wondering actually, is television a little bit better at certainly now, I think it probably is better at taking on issues, inverted commas, you know, things that are in the news, I suppose it can react much more quickly, but and, you know, we we often have this debate between ourselves about Mm -hmm. long-form television and uh, movies, and long-form television is like a novel famously and a, a movie is like a short story and for me i mean i just love a movie <laughs> but mm-hmm. e- but i read novels so you know um but uh so i do think there, like well, i think we've said i mean there is an awful lot of thought it is a thoughtful movie i'm interested actually that the director only did this one film he never made another one am i right in saying because that? it lost
1: so much money right and, um mm-hmm.
2: and, and, and a lot of that was his investment so
0: ah. I, I
1: think that probably turned him off of that
0: mm-hmm. Um, what was Betty always going to be the choice for the film? Because I've heard no, other No, actually, names are... the
1: first name, um, uh, the first person they offered it to was Mary Pickford. I've like heard that yet. And Hedda Hopper said, no, this is going to be one of those commie, you know, <laughs> things. You better not even touch that. And then they offered it to Irene Dunn. And she said no. Right. Um, so then it went to Betty. And um, I love the story about when, um, if you already know it, please do tell it about when Joan and Betty were at the same studio. But then one day after, at the end of the day, while she's filming this, Betty's at her, you know, studio dressing room at her makeup table, massaging the cold cream, as we know she likes to do. She always wrote about doing that. And suddenly a wall opens and Harry Cohen steps out, making obscene gestures without looking at her. And Betty stands up and yells, you know, get out of here this instant. And he turns around and makes a hasty retreat. And then the next day she complains to a producer and the producer says, oh, he wasn't there for you, Betty. Don't worry about it. He was there for Kim Novak. Oh. You're in Kim Novak's dressing room. And she was moved to the other side of the studio and Harry doesn't know that. So what's worse that
2: Harry Cohen oh. comes in your, you know, sort of a Double insulter in his life. Yeah, yeah. There oh, for bedding, <laughs> which is very no, sad. Yeah, all yeah. for mm-hmm. her.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, but yeah, it is a generous performance by her. I think you know there isn't much grandstanding from her. You know, and it's apart from the little boy who I kind of agree with. I'm not terribly fond of. But um, I think the supporting roles are very. Are I mean, Kim Hunter. You were telling me it was one as the best supporting actress for. Um, Oh, yeah. am I confusing you her with somebody else? Um, for Stella, streetcar named, Stella. Yeah, 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 that is her, that is her, the yeah. same Kim yeah. Hunter. So yeah. yeah, so there's pedigree there definitely, and um, the man playing Paul went on to have a kind of a TV
0: career. Mm, I yeah, remember so. from that. <laughs> yeah. early in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking about the um, the stereotyping of librarians, you know, because you, you were mentioning that about Betty's costume. It's very, it's very librarian, mm-hmm. and um. It's one of those things. Every year, when there's a fashion thing, it's like, oh, librarian chic. gets this look, mm-hmm. but but also there was it's kind of a reason. And it was certainly in Ireland, why um, libraries were always associated with sort of I suppose older unmarried women. It's that um, women had to leave their jobs when they got mm-hmm. married in the civil in the civil service. So. It's a stereotype but also that's how it was, you know. Yeah, was, yeah. And in this case she's it would have been a young widow getting this job if she'd been mar- if her husband had survived maybe she wouldn't have been working in the library, you know. Yes. Yeah. So there's that kind of stereotype of the librarian and how she looks and then there is kind of some something of the reality to it as well.
2: Yeah.
0: Um but yeah. She's a nice librarian, the stereotype librarian, (laughs) but she does look like one, you know. Mm. Well, Betty
1: always did go for realism. Yeah. So she's, you know, uh, her whole film career, it wasn't about looking good or looking Mm. sexy. It was Mm. about being true to Mm. the story Mm -hmm. and the character and being realistic. Mm. So, like in Marked Women, or Marked Woman, rather, which I showed in the film club, when they first um, did her bandages, she said it looked like a Lily Dashay hat, (laughs) you know, after she got (laughs) sliced up by the gangster. So, you know, as when we were talking about this before, you mm. pointed out that she would have been much older than her actual age. Mm. So yeah. she's not playing 48. No, no, not She's at all. playing an older woman.
2: Yes.
0: Because yeah. it comes up about the husband having died in the First World War. So, you mm-hmm. know, Betty Davis would have been a child at that time. So, yeah. Yeah.
2: She's, she's playing
0: older. But yeah. she's and not afraid yeah. to and do it for yes, play yeah, her. You yeah, know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
1: so the gray isn't really just, you know, Betty being heavy handed. No, not at all. No, no. Uh, when she wore the rubber appliances for Mister Skeffington, and Vincent Sherman <laughs> was like,
2: "No, you don't have to look that bad." She's like, "No, I want to look really bad. Slather it on." But mm. well, she um, is there is a fearlessness about Betty Davis, which is I think is why everybody you know always enjoys her. or Most people enjoy her, you know. And um, she was yeah, she was one of these actresses unvain in that way. Mm, but mm. Um, uh, yeah, so this
1: is her last starring role for quite some time mm. um, until really Baby Jane. Um, But she spent it working a lot in television and television was really lucrative. She would make between Mm. five and 10,000 a week. So, I mean, that's pretty Mm. good. And one television, um, I was just looking this up, one of her first was, it was her second, I think, was called, um, her um, TV movie was called And Malice Towards One. And she plays a novelist. And this snooty New York publisher says nasty things about her novel and won't publish it. So she gets a gun and goes to him and forces him by gunpoint to publish her novel. (laughs) And I was thinking, there's got to be something there. That's got to be pretty good.
0: Mm. And is any of this available to watch now? Some of it's on YouTube as, Mm. Right.
1: and um, now I saw clips of and Malice Towards One I don't know if the whole thing is but lots of it more and more pops up on right, YouTube yeah. so or archive.org as well has a lot
2: of that old TV stuff <laughs> hmm a lot of television stuff gets dismissed, I suppose, unfairly, you know. But then it's um, it's hard to access it. I mean, you mentioned I work in RTE. I work in the Photographic Archive in RTE. But uh, there's constant pressure on RTE and other broadcasters to make their stuff available, you know. And it's sitting on video formats which are gradually mouldering away and are, you know, going to be gone very soon. So people are trying to digitise. But the rights associated with rebroadcasting TV and, you know, people not knowing, you know, not being able to trace actors. Because you ju- you have to pay actors, you have to pay writers, you have to pay directors, uh-huh. you know. So it is just it's you know a complete nightmare clearing rights. So there's issues around that. But it's it's a real shame. You kinda wish there was some way <laughs> you could make stuff available immediately it was digitized and say, look, we're just making it available in this small format and please don't relicense it and trust mm. it, trust the whole world to behave honourably. The but unfortunately, do it. right yeah, I know. <laughs> well, this, Put everything yes up. well this is where the internet step steps in, you know, where yeah. there's a demand, the internet will basically meet it. So um, but I have mixed feelings um, about it as a librarian you want to because you're um, being assuming the librarian role again you have to respect the law you have to respect copyright you have to respect privacy and people getting paid for their work that they do so but equally you want to make stuff available so you know actually I was we were discussing if you were to make a film on censorship um now in the here and now where it would not really be it's unlikely to be focused on a library it's much more likely to be uh, focused on an issue uh, relating to the internet you know freedom of you know how, how far should censorship go and that, that debate is happening now on social media how far should the company step in to stop it when people are behaving unacceptably or should be you be free to say whatever the hell you want and you know damn the consequences and so on so um, but yeah it's interesting to think you know is there a movie to be made or maybe there has been one made on censorship on the internet and librarians and <laughs> in that context you know because most librarians now are kind working with technology so that that's the new kind of frontier um in terms of librarians it's not going to be books anymore at least the books is in the format that we know them you know it'll be websites and you know what's out there on the internet mm. I don't know if any of those CSI
1: shows have librarians on them, but I'm sure if they do, it's an update of the Kim Hunter look of the super tight <laughs> blouse, yeah. tight skirt and and super high heels. That's the modern update. But what are some other librarians that you really like from film? Pearl, you mentioned some uh, mm. male that mm, sort mm-hmm. of get the, are, are deemed lovable or are protagonists, but are some lady librarians that you like?
0: Ah, uh, well, I suppose <coughs> before I answer that, I was just thinking of something Parla said earlier about how libraries sometimes are more the focus in films than the librarians. Mm-hmm. And thinking you might ask this question, I just did a, a quick Google hunt, which is a very modern librarian thing <laughs> to do. And there are a lot of films with scenes in libraries. You'd be surprised how many films Wander into libraries because I suppose you've got the investigative journalists, you've got um, the police, you know, sometimes you've got the high school teenagers. So libraries are often there. Librarians, not so much. And if they are there, they're often there to either, I don't know, be a bit efficient and a bit disapproving of our heroes. But um, so I was thinking, well, I was finding it difficult to find a favourite librarian. And then I remembered Marion in The Music Man, um, as played by Shirley Jones. And she's the heroine in the film. Uh, yes, she has glasses and her hair in a bun, but uh, she gets to sing, she gets to dance, she has the romance. And she is the smartest character in the film, essentially. And so I rewatched a few scenes just to get a flavour of it. And there is actually a scene in it where the ladies of the town are giving out about her putting in dirty books in the library. Mm. Back at the turn of the century, they're saying, Chaucer, Rabelais and Balzac. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, ah, she's okay. like Betty. She's had to fight them over this. So yeah, mm-hmm. so, they do mention
2: ladies' group sending in letters objecting to well, the city council. It, yeah, this is all—it's yeah, all, always a ladies' group. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, in this one yes, as well, and, yeah, the ladies yeah, are against yeah, her. Yeah. So and you
0: get mm-hmm. Marion rhymed with librarian with carrion. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's worth checking out. There's a really there's a good song and dance number in the library where she gets to stamp books rhythmically while people are dancing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. As you do, as you do. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> well, more recent librarian, I rather like as Rachel Weiss in The in the Mummy that's about I think that's the late 90s and um, you know just because it's Rachel Weisz and she's always uh, appealing mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, but there was an interesting movie last year Columbus it's actually a film about architecture set in Columbus Ohio but uh, again it's possibly the library more than The Librarian being the star but um, there's a young um, actress in it who works as a shelver in the library and is debating whether or not to do a master's in library and information uh, studies <laughs> and her colleague who is a qualified librarian I think advises her not to it is a terrible um, t- you know, employment record for people who have this masters. It just amused me because to have somebody talking about what it, you know what you have to do to become a librarian—that you actually have to take a master's <laughs> or a postgraduate course. So it was funny to see that in a film about architecture, just as an incidental. And both young people, you know, discussing it. So um, I thought that was kind of sweet. But uh, I think you're right about how libraries feature very heavily. All the, All the President's Men is a good example. Actually, they come—it's a, it's a kind of a plot point. They come in at some point, and it's a library assistant who kind of searches through old records little bits of paper so uh, very old fashioned in that way but more recently Spotlight now there isn't a library and a librarian as such but it, there is a kind of I think it's an unofficial library at the, at the basement where the um, whoever's in charge of the, the stuff basically the records and the newspaper keeps all of these back issues of uh, Catholic directories so this is how they find um, or they track down where how the priests are being moved around in the diocese by looking at the successive years going mm. back so you're kind of thinking the inner librarian or archivist in all of us kind of goes <laughs> yay <laughs> there is a reason for keeping those back issues you know they're not just moldering there on the shelves they do have a function so yeah (laughs) well definitely
1: carol lombard um as Mm. i showed in the film club no man of her own um which is fabulous but also um barbara stanwick in forbidden starts out as the librarian and and she's so sick of it. She's so sick of mm-hmm. everyone knowing when she's going to show up and the routine of it. So she says, basically, I'd like to see this whole town burn down and I play my ukulele. While. <laughs> <laughs> and then she takes out all of her worldly savings and goes on a fabulous vo- vacation so she can have like a hot love affair and live a little. Mm-hmm. Um, wear a fabulous gown, you know, by Ori Kelly, of course. Um, so uh, that's definitely one a modern one, I'd say, Parker Posey, Party Girl. If you haven't seen that, that's okay. really good. Mm-hmm. Where she stops being a party girl and becomes a librarian, <laughs> and it's like, yes, you know, this is this is the living the dream of respectability kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are loads more, of course. Desk Set with Catherine Hepburn and Joan Blondell, and Joan yes. Blondell was a librarian in real life um, before she became I you know reading about famous that. on yeah. the stage yeah. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. There are librarians everywhere. They <laughs> love the librarians. Forget it <laughs> <But, yeah. laughs> Can't get rid of us just yet. <laughs> Anything else you want to say in closing?
2: Well, definitely see it. Yes. for sure. Oh, but I despite whatever it. reservations, I, d- I wouldn't want to put people off it. Like you say, it's definitely worth worth viewing. And yeah, yeah it's a sort of, not it's just a, as a period piece, but, you know, for it's what kind it
0: of, It's well, you know, it's a brisk and interesting mm-hmm. story. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth seeing.
1: I would I would agree uh, wholeheartedly. Um, and the Russians do have it. So mm-hmm. if you Google it with OK.ru, it'll, it'll show up. And you can get it on DVD as well. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time for episode 39 when I talk about Carol Lombard and Hands Across the Table from 1935. Thanks very much.